Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Cordera. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. As always, we have our illustrious Jason Goth. Welcome, Jason. Hey, Vincent. I am all back from vacation. Glad to uh, have you. Someone actually said after the last podcast, they're like, I think you published them out of order because you talked about being back from vacation and you talked about going on vacation. And I'm like, no, I just went on two vacations. (laughs) So I'm back from the second one. If people are counting at home. (laughs) For our listeners who are counting. There you go. That's funny. Well, listen, Jason, today I want to do something a little bit more topical, if you will. I came across an article and I sent it to you. It was in Technology Review. The headline of the article is, what does GPT-3 know about me? And for those of you who don't know, GPT-3 is one of these large language models. It's it's out of OpenAI. It's really quite massive. It's really quite impressive in what it can do and how well it can write, a bit like a human writes. The author of this article had this curiosity effectively of like, well, these models are built off the internet. The internet knows things about me. What does it actually know about me? And started asking questions. And it was an interesting dissection of her journey down that path of trying to understand how these models work and what they learn and what do they retain, sort of what are the latent embeddings here. And it was kind of shocking, kind of surprising. So I'm going to talk a bit about that, but I want to talk about it not so much in the context of novelty or how do these models work at its core, but rather, like, what are the implications of this? And to do that, we will have to talk a little bit about how it works at its core. But really, that's not meant to be the focus. It's more about what are the implications. Sound good? Sounds great. I did read that article, and it was a little bit scary and, and creepy, you know, uh, about what it, what the model did know about, uh, about you know, not necessarily the author, but about other, you know, prominent figures, people that were that were featured prominently somewhere on the internet or had content about them on the internet. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into it then. So I think a really interesting setup to this problem is to, is to not talk about it at all first. And that might sound strange, but bear with me. I want you, Jason, to think about compression, just like compression algorithms and, and how do they work? And in particular, what I'm interested in here is, is, lossy compression algorithms. I'm, I'm less interested in the lossless ones where you can recreate whatever with the input directly. But maybe just like if you could give me a sense of when you think about compression, how does it work? What are the attributes that it's trying to accomplish? Because I think something similar is going on here. Not to well, put you on the spot. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks for the warning. Um, <laughs> now, I, you know, compression to me, I do think in, differently about it in 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 terms of lossless and lossy, right? So lossless being, you know, the idea of something like a zip file, I can zip it up, it reduces the size, but then the person who gets it obviously can unzip it and have, you know, all of the information for the spreadsheet or whatever or PDF without, without any loss of information. Hence the term lossless, <laughs> right? Where, whereas, you know, for say image compression or video codecs or, audio or something like that, where you're actually going to lose quality to save bandwidth. And, and everyone's familiar with this, right? You, you get on a plane, you're going to download a movie. Do you want like the high quality HD for, you know, one that fills up all the empty space on your phone, or do you want the, the less, you know, lower quality? And so that's, that's a compression that generates loss. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm really interested to see how you tie this into the large <laughs> well, language models. Well, I think, look, the thinking here is like, to your point, I think historically computer scientists have approached compression is we have this thing, it's too big to transmit, it's too big to store, it's too big to something. And what we have to do is come up with some algorithm, some technique, some set of instructions such that we can recreate with some fidelity, some arbitrary fidelity, and this goes back to the lossy versus lossless, but let's really perfectly just some, some arbitrary fidelity such that I can transmit a smaller version and you can get something that's close to the original, right? That's the setup. Okay. Is that fair? Is that yes. what people do? Okay. Yes. In some sense then what you could say is that is equivalent to what we ask machine learning models to do in general. So specifically, what we do with machine learning is we say, look, we know what other people, or even you specifically, have done in the past. Every single action, every single time, every single decision you've made, we can model that out. We can, we can create data, and we do create data, and we can store that data, and we do store that data, and then we can kind of play it back. The model then is expected to take some version of that, learn what those attributes, those important attributes are, in a way that allows us to, in the future, recreate what your actions were, or or in this case, actually usually typically forecast what your action would be in some hypothetical scenario. So given the choice between a red shirt and a blue shirt, which one are you more likely to choose? Is a bit like, in my mind, compression insofar as I want to take all your previous actions, store that down in some small, easy way to consume, and figure out which one are you more likely to pick. You tracking so far? Yeah. I am. I, I don't know about all machine learning, but certainly some of the um, like language models or vision models where you say, like, create me a picture of a, a person riding a blue skateboard, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's one way, one way to communicate that is to send a picture of a person on a blue skateboard to everyone. Another way to send it is to send a, that description. That description is very, you know, it's very lossy in that regard. And, and everyone might have a different um, you know, mental image of what that looked like, but it would be roughly the same. And what the, the models are doing is trying to encode that so that we only have to send that small bit mm-hmm. and, yeah. and not the entire image. Yeah, that's right. And so I'll, I'll try to make this, I'll try to make this analogy like really poignant here in one second. Um, but, but one more bit first, actually. So remember, I mean, you probably have more examples than I do because you're older than me. Uh, it's, it's Jason's birthday, by the way, today for our yes, listeners. Thank you. Uh, Thanks yeah, for happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks for remembering. On, <laughs> outing you on uh, a podcast here. It's fun. Um, the the point though is like, remember back when when Blu-ray first came out, or when 1080p first came out, or when 4K first came out. We had we had these DVD players. I think Blu-ray is a really good example. We had these DVD players. And they played DVDs, and that was fine, and that was in some resolution. I don't remember, 720 or something. I can't remember exactly, whatever the resolution of DVDs are. And then we had these Blu-rays, and Blu-rays were this 1080p in often cases. Um, really, really clean, crisp images. I remember just being blown away by these things. But it turns out not, not all DVDs were, of course, all these movies, rather, not all these movies were actually in the higher resolution yet. And so we had these upsampling process, right? which in some sense is just compression running in reverse, which is like, okay, great. Let's create an algorithm that takes this lower resolution and upsample it something in higher resolution. 
right? Or fill in the fill in the gaps, essentially. Yeah, fill in the gaps, right? A technique though to take something lower and make it more rich, more fidelity, which is exactly what models do today. And by the way, these models now can do that really, really well. It's no longer doing some simple interpolation. We have far more sophisticated models that are doing far more intelligent things conceptually. But same concept. What's fascinating about that to me is we could then, because these models have improved, because these models are really good at upsampling, for example, they're really good at colorizing, for example, we can now ask it to like, hey, here's a black and white image, just go colorize it as though it was done by a human. And they do an amazing job, a remarkable job doing exactly that. Or take, you know, you've seen on uh, the commercials of Apple, you know, take take this background, you know, person out of the background of the picture, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly right. Like the sort of segmentation, like grab this person or remove this person from the background and then fill it back in, right? Fill it back in with what belongs there. Adobe has some cool products for video where you can, you know, I think their demo is like they have a horse on a beach riding. It's like, hey, remove the horse. And then the, the, the hoof prints are still on the beach. Like, no, no, remove those two. And it, and it can sort of fill all that back in. So there's no human or horse or anything in the image anymore. Okay. So now let's try and pull all this together. How does it do that is the core question. Like, how are the models today better than the models of upsampling of the past? And we alluded to some of those. In essence, what we've done is we've taken all of the videos that we have today, all of the images we've had, all the text that we have on the internet today, and we've asked a model to go through that and extract effectively the information that exists in those model, in those images such that the model could predict in the future what would fit there. So, so a good or sort of canonical example here is Mad Libs. That's basically what these large language models do is they've learned how people speak in such a way that they could fill in any missing word and it would be intelligent and often contextually correct. How do they do that though? And this is where it really gets to the privacy bit. They must know how people speak in order for that to work, or what images look like in order for that to work, what humans look like in order for that to work, or beaches in the example of the video for that to work. But where do they learn that? Well, they learn it from the internet. And the internet is filled with words that a human has written, at least today, a human has written all the words on the internet. Maybe not all, but most of the words on the internet a human has written. And that means that the human was trying to communicate some information to some other human. That's why they spent the energy to write this out. There are a variety of motivations for why somebody wanted to communicate that information to another human, but they have done it. Meaning that perhaps there's an article, uh, back to the case of this of this article that we read, which was, what does GPT-3 know, know about me? Back to this article that we read, which is, what does GPT-3 know about me? It really is that somebody wrote about this author previously. Somebody had said, you know, that she had done these things, she'd written these articles, she'd written about herself, of course, in her byline, and her biography. The model got to see all of that at some point during the training and actually retained, latently retained some of that knowledge so that when we ask the question as Mad Libs, like fill in the blank, this person is, it knew that she was a journalist, it knew that she wrote about technology, it knew that she talked about a variety of these topics and it knew that her boss was this very controversial figure in particular. And the question then becomes, well, what other information is latently stored in these models that we don't know until we go query it to figure out like, what was it actually trained on? Well, it was trained on all of the internet. So like, what does the internet know about you? I don't know, probably a lot. That's, that's the scary part. And I did not know where you were going with the encryption and compression analogy, but it is, it is 
a, a good analogy now that I think about it of we're compressing all of this data, the internet down into a lot of information and knowledge. And then when it's asked, it decompresses and, and it is because it is lossless, it fills in the blanks. I think that's where you're going yep, with that. That's right. And so that, well, and it may not be lossless, but it's lo it might be lossy still. Right. But it's it's very intelligently lossy, meaning like we've trained a model with the objective function such that we shouldn't be able to tell that it in fact is like interpolating these results. And I think that's the that's the particularly dangerous part. Then is right. that it becomes hard to disambiguate. Like, is this a factual element that it got from the internet somewhere, or is this something that it made up, which is typically called hallucination in these models? Right. And so that's where I was gonna. Oh, okay. Go. Sorry. No, that's. Fine. I stole your punchline. No, I know that's where I was gonna go. I think there's, there's two issues, right? Uh, that come up with that is, well. Is what you're, using as input correct, right? So you know the idea of kind of poison pilling a model or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's the information that it rehydrates, correct? And both of those things could be correct. Both could be incorrect. Where I think it gets a little scary is what is it used for, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there are certain use cases like, well, if if I get it wrong, so what, right? You know, I predict you would like the blue shirt instead of the red shirt. I get it wrong. Okay, well, okay, maybe the company lost out on that sale. Maybe they correct it, and next time they get it, you know, if they do get the sale. These are not huge issues in the in the uh, grand scheme of things. Whereas, if I were to, let's say, use that data that was reconstituted, and there is incorrectness in it, but I were using it for some function like deciding if I got a job or what my interest rate should be, then there could be real impact to that uh, and i think that's what's scary about that so those may be we'll, we'll call those the ethical considerations for lack of a better term and then there are other considerations which are the privacy impact of it right so i think they had the example in the article of could it generate my boss's home address mm -hmm. right and and then i can't remember if it did or not but i you know i think there's certainly the potential at least to provide a lot more personal information, right, than, than someone might be willing to share. I'll use a personal example. I had, uh, as you know, a couple of years ago, I had thyroid cancer and I had my thyroid removed. And would, you know, the model be able to determine that? And would someone be able to use that, you know, uh, information? Now, I, I don't particularly care, to, you know, I don't mind sharing that, but I think there are probably some personal things some people would mind sharing. So there's that privacy aspect. And then there's the, is it ethical to use some of that information? And I guess what I would say, those are two issues that are issues in and of themselves, privacy and, and, and ethics. I think what complicates it here is like, what's the mechanism by which the model is using to generate that? And is it even correct in the first place? Yeah, that's, I think that's exactly right. There's, there's a layer of abstraction that takes place in these large language models. So I think, by, which they have to, right? Otherwise, they're too large, right? You can't go like, I want to go search the internet in real time every time I want to know, like, right. is this a bunny or not? Right, and I think that's that's that was exactly my analogy in some sense, which is really this this exact question has existed for some time. I mean, the internet is effectively worthless, but for search engines. 
So search engines for a long time have been trying to make sense of what is on the internet, what, what does it mean, and how do I guide people to the information they're seeking at any given moment. And over the past, uh, I don't know, when was it Microsoft? I know we were working on these things then, but you call it decade or something. We've been trying to get to a place where when you do a search, for example, if you type the weather in your zip code, it just gives you the answer. The search engine will just say, okay, great, well, here's the exact forecast for your for the zip code you typed. Or if you ask, you know, like something nearby me, you know, it'll give you an answer to that. And, and again, like this was the beginning of this, but it's gotten so much more complicated. And so what I mean by this is, look, early days of the internet, you would search for something, you'd be guided to a web page. Now, you may not know why it chose that web page. Um, explainability has been increasing over time, but you still might not know why. But it didn't really matter because you would see the web page. You would see the publisher. You'd see what domain it belonged to, and you could go read it yourself and be like, Oh, that's from that source? Like, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in what they have to say that's always filled with lies or propaganda or whatever. What's different when you move to the world of giving people direct answers in the case of search is that, well, even there you still some you still you get an answer, but you you have some idea of why. You didn't choose you don't know why they chose this answer over some other answer, but it at least tells you like why. The challenge is that as you move to a world where, where the internet then starts to give you an answer, you start abstracting some of that away. Now, it's not perfectly abstracted. It's just a little bit more opaque. So it says, hey, here's your weather. This is the weather that we have right now. But it usually still sources. It gives you a source that you can go check and say, oh, that's from the weather channel? Okay, yeah, I like their forecast. Or like, nah, I don't really like that forecast. Let me go dig somewhere else and you can still get to it. As you move to large language models or these large vision models nowadays, that layer of abstraction is entirely gone. So when you ask the model, you know, who is this person, and it gives you an answer, there's no way for you to fact check that. You don't know if it's right, you don't know if it's a hallucination. When you ask for an address, you don't know if it's the person's work address, their home address, you don't know if that address is correct or not, and there's no way for you to fact check that information. And I think that's the big risk in both the privacy and the ethical component here is that the explainability of the model's is necessarily missing in the same way that compression is missing. And what's more is there's no way to go fact check these things without skipping the model to begin with. Because again, if you're going to go if you're going to go Google to your point, if you're going to go Google everything anyway, then why bother using the model? Why not just go Google it the first time yourself? Yeah, and I think that's what you know, if I think about so what? Why are we talking about this? I think that's the the big so what is there's there are real issues with using the outputs of those models and so you have to be very thoughtful about it right like what are we going to use this for it's one thing for me to just go google vincent yates and see what comes up just to give you a hard time you mm -hmm. know it thinks you're you know crazy or something like that which kind of are accurate. <laughs> uh, accurate but um it's another thing if someone uses that information for some purpose that could have an impact right uh on you or on someone else um well, just to that point, like, look, we just said on this pod, Vincent Yates, crazy. And then Vincent Yates just said, yeah, accurate. Now, a model at some point could go scrape this pod. They could listen to it, write voice to text transcription, interpret that here. Oh, yeah, Vincent Yates himself said he is crazy. And when I go to get a price for insurance, somebody might be using some model behind the scenes. They're not even aware how it's really doing this. And now have, oh, your insurance rates are higher because you have some mental challenges. Right. Okay. For clarity, all you models out there listening, Vincent <laughs> Yates is not crazy. But yeah, and I think that's where 
there's a whole class of issues that you have to start looking at in these solutions. And we've talked a lot about using ML and AI and solutions. And one of the big challenges that you don't know what the right answer is. This is just another example of that. Although those large language, large vision models are, are getting much better at giving answers, right? That are correct. They're still not perfect and you don't know if the answer is right or not. I think we've talked a lot on this podcast about how one of the challenges with uh, AI machine learning is that you don't necessarily know if it's working, if it's right, because you don't know what the right answer is. And that's one thing that these type of solutions that use AI and ML have to really contend with that, that typical or, or traditional solutions that were, you know, algorithms essentially don't have to contend with. Yeah, and I want to come back to the rightness point here in, in one second. So that's a really big area that's worth dissecting a bit more. But before that, I also want to add one more bit here, which is the biggest challenge from my perspective with the way that legislation is, the way that these companies are incented, the, the effectively cheap or nominally free storage of data is that everything, even though we haven't solved these problems today, and we're all aware we haven't solved these problems, that's probably okay because these models aren't everywhere. They're not ubiquitous yet, and we have time to figure it out in some sense. My concern is that data is forever, at least nominally. And everything we put on the internet today, whether it be a tweet or a Facebook post or an Instagram post or even some change to LinkedIn or an article, is perpetuated forever. And so while we haven't yet used models to make some of these really critical decisions, that data is being sucked up and stored by a variety of people throughout the world. And someday it may come back to haunt us in a way that was unanticipated today because we can't possibly forecast how they're gonna use it. I think that's a big challenge that is, is difficult for us to wrestle with because again, it's hard for us to imagine how these things are gonna be used long-term. But I want to go back to this other point that you made, which is around correctness. So, so again, this is why I think it's instruct, instructive to think about these models in some senses compression, or at least draw the analogy. They're not, they're not literally compression, but they are kind of in compression, in, in my mind at least. And, and I think that's probably our whole pod in and of itself. Because, um, again, I think there are a lot of really interesting parallels, and I think in some sense this might be the future of compression. Because, again, you could, you could start sending stuff in a known way, and know, because these models are deterministic. You know ex-ante exactly how it's going to be re-rendered on the other side. And so while these models are really big, you know, we're talking about hundreds of gigabytes for these some of these large language models nowadays, they have so many parameters. That's still not a big deal because you could sort of ship the devices with that model pre-built on them. And and it could be 5x that size and that still wouldn't be a big deal because you can ship them, ship it with it and only have incremental updates being streamed over the internet. So that's quite interesting, but a different pod perhaps. My point though is what we train these models to do today, in the, in the way we train models, by the way, we, we ask them to optimize what we call an objective function, this thing that sort of describes like what is better versus what is worse. These objective functions are designed at the moment to be, if you think about large language models or vision models, you know, com computer vision in terms of generation, they're designed to say, make it believable that a human wrote this. They're not being evaluated on, is this accurate, factually accurate? They're being evaluated on, is it passable human text? A bit of a Turing test in some sense. Like, could a human who read this be able to tell that this was written by a human versus a machine? 
And the goal is to say, no, you cannot tell, given some text, given some story, given some image, that a machine generated this versus a human generated it. And that in of itself is the most problematic aspect from my perspective of these models is that we're intentionally designing these models to be indistinguishable from what humans are doing, which means that it becomes in necessarily becomes increasingly difficult to tell, is this written by a human or is this written by a machine? Is this decision, is this image, is this copy, is this text factually correct written by a human or was it written by a machine? And I think that's the big risk in my mind is that we are intentionally designing these things to be the same as a human, which makes the internet all the more difficult to make sense of. I agree. And you mentioned the Turing test. So for those that don't know, Alan Turing was somewhat the father of modern computer science. All, all computers today are what we refer to as Turing machines. And his, he had a test, which was, could you tell if I, I was a computer or not? And that's where that comes from. But that is a big challenge if the objective function is it's indistinguishable from human text and not if it's correct, right? If we then use some of that and if it fills in the blanks with things that are incorrect, then what would the downstream impact be? So I think we, it's probably worth separating those two issues, ethics and privacy. I, I think, you know, the article is much more focused on privacy. I, it would probably be worth having a, a set of podcasts on privacy because there's, that's just one of the many, many privacy concerns going on uh, that our customers have to deal with today. There's the third party cookie issues and all of that legislation and what you know the technology firms are doing to resolve that. Many of them are turning to machine learning. So, you know, Google has its privacy sandbox that they were building into Chrome, which had one one approach called Flock Federated uh, Learning, learning of, of Cohorts or something okay. like that. Yeah, which was using a, a model to decide now they, they have a different approach called topics or topics API. But again, those are all based on the models. And again, is it an issue that the model may be filling in the blanks wrong or with private information? I don't know. It depends on, on what you use those things for. And so I think it's something that everybody is going to have to contend with, be very thoughtful around what are we doing and, and what information are we sourcing and from where, and is it correct? Because I also think that there are going to be some real consequences for getting that wrong in the future. And we already see that with privacy legislation, right? Uh, HIPAA and, and other things around I mean, HIPAA, you can be fined like a certain percentage of your company's revenue, right? And right. so, well, how far does that extend down? So I think people, again, not that these things are, are inherently bad. What's the, uh, there's some Latin phrase that abuse of a thing is not an argument for its proper use uh, or against its proper use. Um, I think these things have good uses and proper uses, right? We will just have to uh, be, be sure not to abuse them. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And, and you're probably right, which is, you know, now we have on the internet, we have the right to be forgotten and in places like the EU, we have CCPA, where you can at least figure out like what were the core elements that these data vendors got about you for from where and to whom did they distribute them? My challenge here is that because these large language models, and, and again, like these are all, I don't mean to pick on large language models, and they're really amazing. And I, and I think they're, they're going to be really fascinating for us to continue learning and watching and, and leveraging in a variety of ways. It's rather that they are so big and so complex that the idea that we're ever going to be able to really like de 
decouple or deconstruct these things in a way that make them intelligent, intelligible to us is, I think, naive. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I think even you mentioned the right to be forgotten. Like, well, if we train this thing and it has all your Twitter accounts, you go delete your Twitter account and say, That's I want exactly you to be it. forgotten. Now you've, yeah, like, exactly. Do I have to go pull all that information out of the model? Which, which you won't be able to. Because right. that's the other crazy thing here that, that, again, just like makes me a little bit nervous is they wouldn't know. Look, it's trained on the whole of the internet effectively. Like the training data, they might have a copy of it, but they're not going to retrain the entire model. Right. You know, we're talking about they've spent months. These things run in the cloud, you know, at massive scale for the order of months on end. These models are not reproduced by you or me or even most Fortune 100. These are producible by a handful of very large technology R&D oriented firms that spend tens of millions of dollars just in compute to build these models. And that is exactly the problem from my perspective. The economic incentive to actually go back and change these models is wildly out of line with what people will pre- presumably want these models to do. And so the way we're designing are you saying, today. Are you saying uh, uh, OpenAI is not going to go retrain GPT-3 every time someone clicks unsubscribe <laughs> on the internet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or or don't remember me? That's exactly, I mean, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and you know, like, look, the th- this goes to, this goes to the actual sort of, approach to building these models and i recognize that it's very early days and that you know this is v1 or v2 or it's, it's really v3 because gpt3 right G, v3 um and i'm not trying to be critical of them because you know, i think they're really really amazing and i think they're going to unlock a lot of opportunity but i am trying to point out like there's a real risk the farther we go down this path without addressing some of these foundational issues that it will at some point be a bit too late because the other thing that we didn't really talk about here is there is intrinsically a bunch of latent information, latent knowledge that are embedded in these algorithms to the point that, again, you can ask, who is this person? Insofar as somebody can download this model, they have downloaded data that even if you went in later and said, no, or legislatively you dictated, no, that must be removed, that knowledge, that information is still in that model somewhere. It's just a question of can you tease it back out and tease it back apart? And I think that is worth recognizing. I agree. There's always a big question of whether you can do something versus whether you should do something. And I think, you know, these models can do a lot of things. The questions you're raising are, should we use them for those things? Or we need to think through what we use them for, because there could be some really negative consequences. And I, this look, this is no different than, um, to me, some of the issues with, with social media, those had some very negative consequences that people did not foresee and think through. And even some of the early AI models had other consequences that, um, you know, some of the uh, ethics researchers have found. And, and so, you know, this is kind of like, okay, now we're at version three, maybe we need to think about some of these things um, before we go wildly implement these things without any any forethought about what those consequences might be i think that's your point yeah and i, and I, and I just like build on that and say like i think the other challenge is that there's no there's no mechanism to incent people to do that look gpt3 started off as a nonprofit trying to research you know foundational ai kinds of technologies and 
ultimately they realize they have to pay the bills and pay these <laughs> researchers what they want to get paid. That's tricky if you don't start selling this stuff and commercializing it. And so, again, I don't fault them for moving towards that path, but they certainly have no desire, no incentive at least, perhaps a desire, I'm not trying to say they don't, but they don't have an incentive, economic incentive, to go invest and, and start over effectively, because that's what would probably be required. Changing what we're actually optimizing these models to go do, changing how we figure out, like, how are we going to remove stuff? What information is actually embedded in this? How do we think about differential privacy, for example? That's really, really tricky. And, and they just, I don't see a world in which they sort of start over and you've raised, you know, many years and no doubt hundreds of millions of dollars of, of effort from what they've done today. On the other hand, these models will drive huge economic value for businesses. I mean, the idea that you could create ads or you could create copy or you could create text or web pages with the click of a button in all of the appropriate languages to truly be accessible by people who may not speak your language or may not be from the place that you've been, I think is absolutely revolutionary and is absolutely worthy of this kind of investment. I think the question is just like, how do we do that? How do we learn from what we've learned so far from other domains that are similar but different and then try and create mechanisms to get the best of both worlds conceptually? I agree. I think there is value in them. And to me, it's a lot like the the social media. Let's let's learn from past mistakes and you know, we'll make our own new mistakes, but at least let's don't repeat the old ones. Yeah. I would love to get you know, Phil Lockhart, who's our chief digital officer and to talk through some of the privacy thing. Cause I, I do think the privacy you know, that, that we talked about, this is an ethical issue, but there's a privacy issue. There's lots of privacy issues these days. And I, and I think it might be worth a pot or two on what are all the privacy issues, this one and others, and what do we want to do about them? Yeah. And that's a great idea. Let's, let's do it. I'll reach out to Phil and we'll get him on here. Phil Lockhart, let it be known. We're coming after you, man. Um, no, but awesome. I mean, thanks for talking. Okay, you realize that some model just thinks you've made a threat against <laughs> Phil Lockhart. Yeah, I've absolutely <laughs> destroyed my future Vince's. Pro it's going to be a future Vince problem. That's really, that's the headline here. Um, as always, Jason, yeah, th thanks so much for today. It was really fun chatting through some of this. I think it's, it's kind of an interesting philosophical topic, but one that's germane to, I think, tech executives across the world. This, this stuff will continue to get increasing amounts of time and attention from, from lots of organizations for good reason, by the way. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. This will actually be the last episode that Jason and I host on this podcast, Technically Minded. We are launching a brand new podcast. Come check it out. It's called Technology Tangents. It'll be Jason and I joined by lots of guests, lots of leaders um, in the technology space, covering a lot of sort of more current event topics as well as these foundational topics. Uh, for those of you who'd like to learn more, please visit the Insights page at credera.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again.